unlearn anti-blackness, make room and space for more and more uh, black and brown folks to talk. If it's about race, let white people listen. Don't let them lead. Try really hard to unlearn your own prejudices against people. Understand that we live in white supremacy. Everybody does. And so it is a systemic problem that we need to weed out. I sound like, you know, intense. I sound (laughs) intense, but it's true. It's really true. That's why we're still here. Yeah. You know, Um, and the systems were written for white people. Mm. The laws were written for white people. They weren't written Mm. for us. And if they weren't written for us, then why should we live under them? And how do we change them? And how do we make them better? It's not like completely, you know, I'm not, I mean, there's a part of me that is an anarchist for sure. But like, how do we, how do we rehabilitate these systems and make it fair for everybody? Race matters. 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 Welcome to another bonus Race Matters episode. My name's Tanya Ali and I'm the executive producer of Race Matters, a show on FBI radio in Sydney that covers issues of race, representation and culture. Getting the chance to talk to this next guest was a real pinch yourself moment for me. Fariha Roisin is a writer, editor and one half of the team behind the incredible podcast Two Brown Girls, which wrapped up about two years ago. You heard from her a little on episode eight of Race Matters. Ryan Clapham and I had the chance to catch up with Faria about really all sorts of things, ranging from politics to pop culture to self-care. And talking to her had such an impact on us that we wanted to make that conversation available to you at length. So here it is now. This is a Race Matters conversation with Faria Roisin. I was raised in Australia. I moved here when I was five, and uh, I grew up in Sydney. I grew up listening to FBI, so that's why I said yes. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And I've been in North America for 10 years, so I completely lost my accent, which I I think a lot of people get mad at me for, but it's just, it's gone. There's nothing I can do. But yeah, I grew up in Australia, and I felt it's really fascinating to see that you guys have this show because, I mean, I'm sure all of us can agree, like, it was so isolating growing up here. Mm. Um, I I moved really young. I moved when I was 19 um, and just, like, just left and um, found whatever ways that I possibly could to stay. I'm part, I'm Canadian. I was born in Canada, so it was a lot easier for me to sort of transition mm. into, like, a North American life, but... Um, I, uh, yeah, a lot of that was because I didn't, I felt so isolated in Australian society, but I felt I came, I come from a very abusive um, household and it was really sort of me trying to extricate myself from that experience and um, putting down foundations for myself where I wasn't being dictated Mm. um, and my freedom wasn't being dictated basically. I mean, we were talking um, off air about, you know, representation and lack of representation of of Asian people in particularly uh, media like film, you know, and I know that that you run a podcast where you were talking about why, you know, there's so much, there's a lack in Hollywood of, of, 
you know, uh, uh, Asian or POC folks in lead roles in in movies and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm working with the Toronto Film Festival right now and doing, a new, I'm uh, launching a new podcast for them, which I'm hosting and producing and writing. Um, and it's called How Do You Solve a Problem Like? And each season we focus on a problem with Hollywood. And so the first season we're focusing on the lack of Asian leads because I think it's like 5% and in with white leads it's like 70%. Mm-hmm. Like so you just like to sort of think about um and that 5% is not even leads. It's just like representation. So um it just goes to show like how far we have to go and how far I mean these these are, this is what's so dangerous. It's like, it's not because we're greedy. I mean, and I talk about this in the podcast, it's like trying to sort of like hold the hand of anybody who might be confused. And it's not just white people. I think a lot of like black and brown people are confused. They're like, what's the big deal? Representation's not that important. It's like, we've got MIA, you know? <laughs> yeah. Great. 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 We, got, we, we got Riz, you know, what, what else do you want, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Just going off um, your comments about film, I, it made me think about Crazy Rich Asians and, and the uh, furor seems like the wrong word, but also the right word that surrounded that film's release. What were your thoughts on Crazy Rich Asians? I mean, I think it's it's got a lot of critique and important critique. I mean, um, you know, there was no brown people in that in that movie and it's based in Singapore, which I think says a lot. And then the one scene with brown people are like four Sikh men that are with ominous music. It was just mm. deeply problematic Mm. but for me I'm a huge fan of romance I love rom-coms I think that we have to be able to make mistakes I don't think that it is helpful to have a conversation I I, and personally it's because I've been doing this for so long I think you know early on in my career 10 years ago at this point I would have been a lot more mad potentially and frustrated but I think that being a creator myself and knowing how hard it is to get things right straight off the bat how many times I've I've done things that I wish I hadn't have or, or mm. known better not to do mm. or the just or like sometimes it's not that deep it's just like you just didn't know you know and like mm. I, I think that you know, I, I want more spaces for black and brown people to be able to, you know, to just screw up. Like, I just think that I am sort of thinking a lot more about how we can like holistically move forward as a community. And I think it's not actually helpful to be overly critical unless it's like you're really, really doing something that's mm-hmm. messed up. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's like and, and you know, maybe a, a Sikh person would I, I haven't talked to any of my Sikh friends that felt mad about it. You know, I think that they're so used to it, unfortunately, at this point. But I think that there's something to be said about, like, yeah, how do we, like, holistically move forward as a community? I'm really invested in that. It's also kind of the burden of representation that comes when there is so little representation. So I feel like a lot of people kind of put a lot of their own... Uh, experiences and wants onto right. this one film that was representing a, a very specific section of the massive Asian right. community. Right. And they really fought. Like, they, the producers wanted to make Rachel Chu white the lead character played by Constance Wu. So I think like they right. really fought for certain things. You know, they, they got, um, they got like, they wanted only Chinese um, actors for the most part. Like they, I think that in a lot of ways it is actually, they should be applauded for how hard they tried mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. they, I don't think people also understand how insidious Hollywood is, how insidious mm. it that industry is and how much white people control stuff. And we'll tell you, you know, my partner works, well, I, we just broke up, but he's a filmmaker, he's a black filmmaker in, mm. uh, in Hollywood. And it's like the stories that I've heard, it's like, it's not easy mm. being a creator anywhere, let alone Hollywood. And so sometimes you have to, and you can't say that in an interview, like, l- listen, I tried my hardest, I tried my best, mm. but I think it is something that I wish that, 
you know, people would would also understand that, yeah, there's a lot of burden, as you said, put on creators. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, you know, the, the, the movement towards um, representing everyone in every film is kind of part and parcel of this larger context towards equality and equal representation because there are things that we'll continue to pick apart in films, but I guess it's more about, well, not more about, but also taking into consideration the things that were really well fought for. Like I think of um, Moana as a film of great steps forward um, for islander culture, for, you know, uh, for Maldi culture. But then again, it was still quite culturally ambiguous as mm. to which culture they were sort totally. of focusing on. So it's kind of that part and parcel of that larger step forward, but also the things that, you know, we still have yet to work on. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's fine. That's great. I think that it goes to show. It's exciting to, to see that, like, doors are being opened and yet it's not happening at the rate that we wish it would, but it has accelerated a lot in the last couple of years. Mm. And it just means that the next person is going to open an even bigger gap and the Mm. next person after that. And I think that there is a ripple effect that's happening for sure. I guess going off uh, speaking about critique is a a perfect kind of segue into Mm. the article that you wrote last year uh, for Affidavit titled MIA and the Defense of Nuance. Could you talk us through what led to writing that article? Um, so I interviewed MIA on stage at the MoMA last year in front of a live audience, and um, it was for the documentary about her life called Maya Matangi Mala. I, I think, think it's, it's MIA Maya Matangi. Yes, exactly. Yeah. MIA Maya. Yeah, and I asked her press that the only reason, the only way I could do this conversation is if I could ask her about her anti-blackness. And the reason I asked that was because a couple years ago in an interview, she uh, was asked about Black Lives Matter and she very just like stupidly, I mean, was just like, what about Muslim lives and Syrian lives? And it was just so unfortunate because I think that she has such a capacity to, I mean, this is a person whose entire body of work has been about activism, has been about talking about the things that nobody else talks about. And I think it was just a really unfortunate loss to see how willing she was to just sort of not delve a little deeper, especially as somebody who does have an an entire career off of black music. And, um, and, you know, I think it's just a really hard conversation because who am I? At the end of the day, I felt, I felt frustrated because I was just like, I'm, I'm just a writer. I don't want to come across as like, uh, you know, an appointed appointed authority but I wrote this piece just because I was really frustrated at her answers and um she's such a charming important person like when I saw her I I, so I had to go up to the like top level of MoMA and it was like so surreal and so exciting as you could as you can imagine and you know there was like like this entire team and like I was escorted and onto like the stage and blah 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 and all that shit or like backstage I um and uh I yeah it was a really surreal experience but I knew that I was about to blast somebody I had like obsessed over my entire life and it was a really hard decision that I had to make for myself because I knew that as a person um, who believes very, very, uh, very vehemently that like allyship with black folks is like is one of the most important causes of like race relations in any context, no matter which country you work, you live in. It's like very, very important to align yourself with black liberation because mm. that that you know if we have black liberation, then we have all kinds of liberation. Mm. Um, 
and she I just I was frustrated because I I, I knew where, where she was going I knew why she made those comments she's just like because she was trying to say that you know America is not the be-all end-all of politics but she was sort of lacking the nuance and lock, la- also lacking the complexity to talk about it and whenever I say that I feel very rude but I do think that that's what was happening because she didn't understand that anti-blackness exists everywhere. It doesn't just exist in America. Mm. And so I told her that, you know, I was just like, you know, you're seeing it from a limited perspective and she just didn't want to really talk about it. And afterwards she was kind of mad at me and I knew that I was going to lose, I was going to lose this person who I could potentially, you know, in my, in this is, you know, as a kid, I would have wanted to be her best friend. And so there was like a huge sacrifice where I was like, nah, I have to do, I have to do what's better for like the, the good of the people. Yeah. Um, and like, do I really want to be friends with somebody who can't have a nuanced conversation about this? Mm. That's also important. It's like, um, thinking about the implications of your language and thinking about the implications of why, um, of why why won't you unpack what you said? I think is dangerous, you know, and I and I think a lot of people did feel uh, that her words were really violent, and she has to understand that not everybody's going to want to have that complexity. Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a black person in in America and you're you have a hard fucking life, you're not gonna give be compassionate to this woman Mm -hmm. you know you have no right or no reason to be you know and so I think that she also is sort of like unwilling to see it from that perspective and she's lost a lot of fans and she's lost a lot of South Asian people a lot of people don't 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 go there anymore you know and I think Mm -hmm. that that's and it's only because of this situation you know so it's it's a complicated issue but yeah that's why I wrote the piece loving MIA as well obviously because she was the only like South Asian musician that we had and and she's achieved this incredible level of success and I know in the piece you kind of wrote about um, how you felt watching the documentary Mm -hmm. about her and kind of seeing this side to her and and like her personal history Um, but it is so frustrating that she won't you know listen Mm -hmm. um and I guess it comes back to kind of that burden of representation, though, because, like, not everyone has to. And, and I guess that's just, like, the path that she's chosen and it's up to us to decide whether, like, that's acceptable exactly. to us. Yeah. I just don't mm. think it is acceptable. That's that's the unfortunate mm. truth is, like, you can't you can't move on from the situation. I can I can paint a complex portrait of her, which is what I was trying to do, that this person is not and I and a lot of people were mad at me for this. Like they didn't want me to be compassionate. But like that's why it's called in the defense of nuance, because these issues are always complicated. And I think if anything, it was a larger um, critique of cancel culture and like how do we really navigate cancel culture is cancel culture really helpful because in one way or another and I don't want to be like everybody is racist because I think that that's detrimental to conversation too I mean other people's racisms are way more dangerous and lethal than mm. other you know like it's there's that's, there's a that's, spectrum exactly there's a spectrum <laughs> of violence um but it is sort of like everybody has the capacity to be canceled. You know, we are all unlearning how to be problematic in different ways. And that's mm. like, you know, whether it's your transphobia, it's your homophobia, it's your racism, your anti-Semitism, your Islamophobia, you know, like there's so many layers of um, hatred. And um, 
And so like that, I was trying to sort of just talk about like, yeah, how do we move forward as a society if we can't have appropriate conversation? Mm -hmm. If we can all agree that, you know, like, okay, um, the penitentiary system is, 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 is dangerous and how do we rehabilitate people basically? And I think that that's sort of been on my mind for a while. How do you rehabilitate somebody that is potentially capable of learning? You know, I, I'm not trying to rehabilitate Harvey Weinstein, but I, I think that I understand why people would want to, you know, because it's like, yeah, I mean, and it's an extreme sort of example, but it's like, I think that as we move forward in these conversations about like just sort of everything, everything's coming to the surface. I think it, it is really imperative of us to think um, what's next. What are the solutions as well? Yeah, wow. I think, um, you know, an article like this is uh, you're not critiquing MIA specifically, but I guess providing that reminder for the greater narrative of to, to be intersectional and and to to consider, you know, what I guess like the, the specific nuance of that fight mm-hmm. and to not invalidate other people's struggles I mean, I'm definitely critiquing MIA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for, I mean, I think intersectionality is so important. I'm also wary. I know that it was written, it was by, it was made by, it was coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw for black women. And so I always think about sort of like the implications of using that word, but it's the best word. Intersectionality really is the best word Mm. to explain how we all kind of need to start being smarter about, especially non-black people of color need to understand that there are uh, privileges that we exist within and that it is our responsibility to Mm. end racism if that's like our goal then we need to yeah we really need to start like actually doing something about it yeah yeah Yeah, 100 percent. not just saying you know not just being woke yeah yeah for the sake of being you know just so you can tweet something yeah true (laughs) that's great Yeah. In a piece that you wrote about Bend It Like Beckham mm-hmm. a few years ago uh, for Hazard, uh, you wrote, our language for who we are as South Asians in the West is still so young, so undefined. We still have so much internalized hatred amongst us. I mean, you just use that term even just then. Um, and I guess like reading that again today really resonated with me in terms of what's happening mm-hmm. with Pakistan and India. I mean, through your experience, I suppose, as part of the South Asian community, how do you think that that can begin to change? Oh, my God. I love this question so much. It's so important. Oh, my God. Oh, yo, it's, it's so deep. Um, so I just so the the publication that I'm a senior editor of is called The Juggernaut and it's for South Asians. Um, it's three brown women behind it and and uh, we're paying people a dollar a word for you know a piece. It's like we're we're trying to create a sustainable uh, environment for journalists and um, it's it, and we're running it. There's that's it and um, it has been so fascinating to see how many South Asian people I know that aren't following it or aren't supporting it Mm. or like it's we are um subscription based and so it's like yeah it's it's 495 or 395 a month or something so you know it's like it's a price of a coffee it's it's cheaper than an Australian coffee okay (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) That's for sure. Um, And I I think it's been really, really upsetting and really, really um, been hurting my feelings because all three of us created this for the community to have this larger conversation about how do we heal collectively. And I know that I've seen it on so many different levels. I've seen it when people come for Rupi Kaur because she's oversimplistic. It's like 
you know, they're, they're on every level, it's like there's so much critique. And she gets it the most from South Asians. She gets it the most from South Asians. And it is all rooted in this reality that we just can't face, which is we don't like each other very much. And that's because, you know, Pakistan hates India, Bangladeshis hate Pakistan, Pakistan, you know, Kashmir is like this tentative region. Uh, everybody feels like they can control it. Nobody's looking at England being like, you're an asshole. <laughs> Everybody's just like internally fighting, you know, and there's no like actual decolonizations. Hindus hate Muslims, Hindus hate Sikhs. Like it's just, there's so many mm. levels of hatred. And so, like, I think it is, and then, like, Brahmins, dude, are you serious? Like, caste? You know, learning more about caste, which is just a form of racism. It is just a form of, so, for people that might not know what caste is, it's like, Hinduism is based on caste. And and I don't want to be disrespectful, and I understand that this is, like, very important for people. But there is levels of, like, who you are as a person and what your value is in society. And a lot of that is based on... Um, just generational uh, things, but it's like, you know, if you're Dalit, you usually you're, and that's sort of the lowest caste, you are um, untouchable and you are generally more darker skin. And so there's all of these layers of like how people are impoverished and continue to be impoverished in South Asia. So there's just so much like distinction and hatred even within your own community, within your own people. And it's, it's a lot of work. You know, like mm. currently the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, has been accused of a Muslim genocide in 2002. And like, that's wild. Mm. This person is, is, you know, a government, a, an elected government official mm. um, who um, people like, you know, that's you're, you're not you're not thinking of that when you're looking at Modi, like Priyanka Chopra is like, you know, taking pictures of him. She was invited. He was invited to her wedding. So it's like, yeah, all South Asian representation isn't going to be the best representation. And and it's like, how do we really navigate that? I think, again, it's important to be critical because I don't really like Priyanka Chopra. But at the same time, I do think that there needs to be more togetherness. And it's hard. And I think the only way through it is if we keep being honest and we keep being frank and we keep being like unlearning that sort of every step of the way, sort of checking yourself. Like the, the, I think the best way that I've learned to be a better ally in any way is to check my own um, discrepancies or my own, you know, the the things that I maybe uh, do need to sort of unlearn, constantly being aware of that and constantly having conversations with people that are expansive and not just people in your your circle um, who, who are going to like pat you on the back for doing, you know, mm -hmm. X, Y and Z. I think mm -hmm. it is really, really vital that like South Asians think about where they want to be and how they want to exist and really claim that and not just reappropriate um, blackness or, you know, subsume themselves in whiteness, like really just sort of like think about the value that South Asian culture has and try to heal um, from that, from that beginning, if that makes sense. It's a lot of work. It's also so generational because, you know, you and I, as part of the mm. South Asian community, kind of tackled these issues very differently to our parents so mm -hmm. um yeah. where are you from tanya pakistan okay yeah. wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's hard it's close to home right now right yeah it is but at the same time because i grew up here i'm so divorced right. from that and i think that's what's really scary because I've, I've been to pakistan i think three times in my life two that i can actually remember um and the last time i went i was 10 or 11 um and yeah, it just it it's scary because I'm trying to reconnect with that part of my background now, but because it, it's like it's almost impossible for me to go back and and I hardly have any family who still lives there. Like, yeah, if, when things like this are happening, I just don't even know how to feel really. Mm, yeah, mm, it's displacement. Yeah, totally. What? Where are you from? Um, I am majority Bangladeshi. Um, and, uh, it's, it is sort of a very conflicted 
state of being because I, um, you know, I feel very like untethered to a lot of things like my, you know, I think it's like, I know what you're saying. It's like you're a diaspora child. So it's like there's there's sort of like these different influences of culture. But because I didn't grow up in Bangladesh, um, I feel very divorced from it. And I feel very like, I, I think maybe just sort of like South Asian light sometimes. You know, it's like it's easier just to sort of like... Bollywood, you know, like sort of like those are like generalities. And at the same time, like I love the specifics of Bengali culture, but it also feels I feel like a foreigner, you know, coming to it. And so that mm. is that is sort of like the existence of being a diaspora child, mm. um, especially a South Asian diaspora child, because I think in other ways we're just so split. You know, when you come to any country and let's just say, let's just talk about Australia. And you feel like you're nothing. You're not white, but you're not the other option. And, you know, I, when I was growing up, blackness wasn't really around me. I didn't have black culture as references outside of sort of music. And, um, and so it was always just like, what am I? What what mm. am like? How am I gonna like talk about myself if I don't even know what I am? And so I think that's why a lot of us just tried so hard to be white. And I think when you're alt and you're just weird, it's very easy to slip into that identity. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm a weird alt brown kid, whatever. You know. Um, and then it was only until I moved to America where I realized, um, and I was like super super like quote unquote woke um in high school like I started the social justice club like I was you know it's funny because like people from I went to Cheltenham girls and people from Cheltenham like still tell like will tell me sometimes like I used to stand up and like talk about like garment workers you know like I was that annoying ass kid <laughs> that was just like you know talking about like I would host you know do like NADOC week events like I was really invested in um trying to decolonize even though I didn't have that word or that language um back then mm. and so it, it made a lot of sense when I moved to America and I was just like wait hold on are you serious this country is <laughs> bleep <laughs> you know I was just like oh my god and wow you can't you can't unlearn or unlook you can't look away from race in, in America you know especially I think everybody should look at race in America everybody should be very very cognizant of what is happening mm. and I think it's easy to to be in Australia and be like oh race isn't a problem and you're like oh, we live on stolen lands firstly let's just like establish that and then you know I but it is that sort of like removal even Canadians like when I was living in Canada for a while just people being like we don't have slavery here it's like are you serious wow. like like you don't even know about slavery in Canada, like because it's there's this idea of everything bad about racism is like the American Southerners that are like yeah. you know saying the N word. It's like racism has happened in every possible iteration in every country mm. known to man, you know, and and especially the colonized countries. Mm, so. Mm. I, I think, um, like, I think about, you know, the, the, especially the Aboriginal movements that we are so constantly uh, struggling to bring to the, the forefront in this country and how visible we're trying to make ourselves um, in Australia. And when I have conversations with my American friends or, or students and to hear the, uh, I guess, just this f strong sense of invisibility for Native American peoples mm. really lets me down. And it, it also confuses me a lot uh, for me who has no place or context in America. It's just, I guess, more a feeling of confusion, but it's like yo, like, what the, why, why isn't anyone talking about this? Why, you know, why don't we have your main channels or main mainstream? I guess it's the same conversation here, but, you know, I don't know. It's There's really a little bit more of a presence, I would have to say. I mean, it's, a, what, it's not, it can't be applauded 
Um, but I do think that it is, it's an unfortunate truth. It is very much, they are completely erased and That's they crazy. don't have, you know, like even in, in government, it's like, we just got a, uh, Native American woman who is a lesbian. I mean, I think now we have like two or three, but we're just like, it is just so limited mm. and it is I think it just really says a lot about, I mean, what are the numbers? It's like from 1533 to 1588, 80 million people in the Americas were murdered. Like, and I think that's just like the, like Howard Zinn version. So it's like, then it's, then it's a lot more, you know? And, and I think that that does something to your psyche, right? I mean, you would know it's like, if you have been systematically murdered on that level Hmm. you just i don't know there's a lot of healing to be done and i can't speak for it but Hmm. i know that it's something that you definitely witness when you're there and it's and it's frustrating and it's really sad and all you can really do is just to support folks that are doing stuff and and Hmm. try and like um amplify whenever you can yeah and it comes back to representation exactly like yeah yeah and that's yeah, I mean, that's really, they, I mean, Hollywood, right? It's just like, <laughs> it's a white supremacy. It's a, it's a tool of white supremacy. Hollywood is a tool of white supremacy. You used to host a podcast called Two Brown Girls, along with fellow writer Ziva Blay. Why did you start that podcast? Um, because we were both working in film criticism primarily, and... Um, we were just so we were being silenced daily by white men and we were just so frustrated because like film is dominated dominated with white men and and i think for the longest time like now we're like women of color you know when we started two brown girls nobody was saying that nobody like had that kind of fluency or i mean that's unfair to say yeah some people were saying it but like you know it wasn't like a um a zeitgeisty thing that is now you know a cultural cultural term term um so we started this to basically just like friend to friend um Ziba is from Ghana, um, first generation American. She, um, you know, she's had a she's had a struggle, and I've had my own struggles. And for for us, we could like come on to this podcast and sort of talk about those struggles, but also talk about pop culture, talk about really dumb shit, and just like be, you know, just like. You know, and also nobody knew what a podcast was. So we were just like <laughs> creating this thing and just going with it. And we somehow got followers and we somehow like created a momentum. And I think for us, it was such a great start off point because we are so proud. Like so many of the things that we talked about on Two Brown Girls, I think really changed culture I mean maybe that's a huge claim but I do think that like I've seen such a shift such a change to how people navigate conversations about race and pop culture and we were one of the first doing that like in terms of and I want to be clear in in a millennial setting you know obviously this is just another wave of like a lot of important work that many activists have been doing for a long time mm. but within this this the internet age it just like wasn't a thing we weren't mm. really talking about this and on Tumblr you were and like Tumblr there was like these weird places where you were talking about this and so I think we really came out of that that sort of like very specific part of the internet and it blew up and yeah like I said earlier it's like I've lost so many friends but I've had so many people um come back to me and say you know I've really thought about things that you said to me a couple years ago which is always like feels great because you're like yeah you know you told me I was an idiot you know (laughs) um and like and oh the reason but the main reason why it started is because we were watching girls in 2012 and we were like what is this oh my shit? God. <laughs> you know like that's why we started it's really that's why we're yeah, called two bad girls yeah yeah and we were like screw that like are you Brilliant. serious like a show about four white women yeah. in new york yeah. like are you serious <laughs> and you know say what you will about lena i've definitely said a lot of things about lena and i don't want to anymore i i just 
I, you know, she is another entity, but I just don't think that it's the climate anymore. It wasn't then either to like (laughs) ever create a show that was so myopic. Um, And it really was sort of the response to that being right at the start of this kind of wave of podcasts and I think now podcasts are even like a lifeline for so many people Mm -hmm. of our generation why do you think that people have kind of grabbed onto this medium particularly women of color non-binary folks I think because it's like YouTube there's a democratization you don't need to like Uh, you don't need to have any affiliation. You can create it in your backyard. You can create it, you know, I was living in Montreal for a while and Ziba was in New Jersey. We were doing it, you know, across the phone. We didn't need to be in the same studio. Like, there was such a efficiency to it, you know, and I think that that's what made it so exciting and accessible to so many people. You shouldn't have to um, fight to be heard. And a lot of people do fight to be heard, but it's like a great platform for people to, you know, like, just gab with their friends, you know, which is why you see so many folks doing that, where it's like, and, and, and yeah, we were doing it ages ago. It's like just two friends being like, shooting the shit with one another and being like, this is, this is ridiculous. Let's laugh about this. Mm. Or like, this is great. This is so exciting. And, and, and I think it's because both of us just have such a love for pop culture, but felt so like unrepresented by it. Yeah. And so it was also just trying to be like pushing the envelope in places that we couldn't we we couldn't do anywhere else, you know, or you know, talking about things we couldn't do anywhere else, and and that that was just so exciting. Mm. We did it for five years. And the last episode that you released was just after Trump's election, <laughs> which it was hard to re-listen to. And I think actually it comes up a lot in, in podcasts that I like. Like I'll just be like, oh, I'll go back and listen to this episode. And it happens to be that that first one. Wow. And for so many American podcasts in particular, like just hearing like it just the life sucked out of of so many people and particularly creatives. Um, It's really, really sad uh, kind of hearing those, those first moments. Um, But I guess two years on, um, what the heck is life like on the ground? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you see the resist posters, you see people um, protesting every now and again. It feels like nothing is being done. But then you question yourself, really, what is the possibility? And I think now there is this, like, exciting movement that's happening with, like, just, like, base, just women, women in government taking the show. And it's, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. or Ilhan Omar, mm-hmm. who's, like, being completely ripped apart right now um, with... Uh, Republicans and the Democrats that are trying to destroy her because of her comments on Israel, which are true. And um, I think it is really unfortunate to see how many people will pander to white supremacy and uh, not even think twice about it. It's very sad. But it does make me really excited about the future of policy because, I mean, you see, like, um, you know, you see, I watched this video of Rashida Tlaib, who's the first. What, so Ilhan and her are the first two Muslim women ever to be um, elected to Congress, and uh, she's the first Palestinian, I believe. And so she was just talking about the racism of of somebody, and it was just like so powerful to just see that like this woman in Congress who is not a white woman talking about racism. Mm. And so that is what excites me, but. Yeah, every day you feel like nothing's really being done and 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 like what can be done. You you elect people. I think that that's it. You elect people that want to change things and I think there's a lot of people that want to change things and that and you just hope that that creates a steamroll. With the 2020 election coming up, do you think that there's going to be a a big shift? No, I don't think it's going to be that fast. I don't I think Trump 
is way too strong. Uh, and well, I mean, he, that's arguable. But like, you know, his his uh, faction and his um, the people around him. Hassan Minhaj did a great Patriot Act episode on <laughs> the evil of the Trump administration, and it really is all the people behind him that are getting everything done. That's they are the the, the sort of the dark lords of Voldemort. You know, like they that's where the evil is happening and so i think he's he's uh, i think he's going to win yeah i think a lot of people think he's going to win i mean i'd like to be pr- it's cuz these things are so glacial right like these this we're trying to like rewrite systemic policy so it's like if you, yeah and they're trying so hard they're undoing everything obama did so you know they they really 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 want white supremacy to prevail and in order for it to not prevail it's just like so glacial so we'll see i mean i liked i would like to be proven wrong but there are way too many racists in america for me to think that he won't win you know and then and then maybe that gives us 4 years to sort of recuperate more to get stronger more you know we'll see mm. Ugh, it's terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. Yeah. Elect. <laughs> vote. Yeah, yeah vote, exactly. Please vote. That's true. Vote. But, yeah. you know, and then the ways that they make it hard for black and brown people to vote. It's like, that's what the. F- yeah. That for you real. live in a democracy. You live in a democracy. What are you doing? It is it is it is so anti-democratic to make it harder for black and brown people. And we know why they're making it harder for black and brown people to not vote. It's so scary. It's so scary. And they have like an answer for everything, like a twisted answer for everything. And you're just like, you are the spawns of Satan. self-care <laughs> oh my god great yeah question. great question because i love it i love self-care i don't i'm not very good at it but i am i write a lot about it <laughs> um i okay so how do i practice self-care i think for me so this trip i've been here for a couple of weeks and my i mentioned my mom's um well, I, I'm a child of abuse my mom's very abusive um she says suffers from schizophrenia bipolar borderline um, and I have like this, this like deep well of sadness inside of me that just like is so deeply wounded. And I think that that's why I do write about self-care so much because if I didn't, I wouldn't, I'd be dead. I really would. And it's, it is a really hard negotiation with myself because I'm just like, sometimes you just want to give up and you're just like, oh my God, like this is way too hard. I had that thought like last week. I was just like, this is way too hard. And I don't have, especially when you don't have support, familial support, or you're not like, you know, I just came out of breakup, like all this stuff. I'm just like, ah, um, and people like I'm at this level in my work where people like, like coming for me and I'm just like, cool, great. Um, and I think the only thing that's really saved me is to remind myself that I'm a good person and that is an investment and like believing in your goodness, um, is so, so, so important. And if you're, if you don't think you're a good person, like question why? And if you're not a good person, like let's try and be better. Like there's so many ways to really, um, to really sort of do that work and I and I really think that people need to do that work more like I, I don't know if we would hate each other so much if we just like really went deep inside of our souls and we we're like okay like what does this say about me like what why am I so wounded that I want to hurt somebody else or that I want to hurt myself or like you know there's so many levels and just having that clarity with yourself having that honest conversation with yourself being so transparent with yourself and 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 you know like 
I'm a very self-sufficient person, so I don't like relying on other people. But it has been nice to maybe like be able to trust friends and be like, yo, like, can you can you look out for me? I'm not doing so well right now. Or, or like, can we go out for dinner? I really need a friend. Mm. Being transparent with people that you really trust, I think, yeah. and allowing them to sort of like come and aid you has been really helpful. Like, this is a community effort, you know, like, you know, what we talk about what we're doing, it's like, it's hard work. And as we said, and you do need to have like, close friends as well. And I think close friends has been so great. Garnering close friendships or sort of um, working towards them, sustaining them has been so helpful for my mental health because when I can't see my truth or my goodness, they're a reflection of that. And that's so powerful to have, to rely on friends and to be like, even my ex to be like, you know, the fact that we, we have a really good relationship and, and like, for when I'm feeling sad or shitty to to have this person reflect on it and be like, you're good, you're you're a good person and, and you can't, you know, you can't let other people determine or dictate how you feel about yourself, which is something I suffer from a lot. So yeah, just like, just like knowing that we're all trying, we're all trying on this planet, you know, and it's, you're never gonna have the right answer, but it's okay, you're gonna keep moving. What's coming up for you this year? So much. So follow the Juggernaut. Uh, it's subscription-based, but it's by three brown women, and it's we're just writing smart, intelligent content uh, for South Asians about South Asians. Um, uh, my tip podcast comes out in a couple of months. Uh, it's called How Do You Solve a Problem Like? And it's six episodes on the lack of Asian leads in Hollywood. And uh, my book, my two books come out this year in the fall. Uh, my poetry book, um, How to Cure a Ghost. And my um, uh, journal uh, for body positivity for like women non-binary folks uh to feel good about ourselves and yeah yeah, that's that's the things that are coming out i've been in my feelings i've been in my feelings baby can you see that baby can you see that i've been thinking maybe i've been thinking maybe i shouldn't be a baby You've been listening to a special edition of Race Matters, a lengthy conversation with the wonderful Fariha Roisin. The interview was presented by Race Matters co-host Ryan Clapham and me, Tanya Ali, and I also produced this episode. You can catch Race Matters live to air at 5.30pm on Mondays, FBI Radio 94.5 FM, on DAB, or streaming at fbiradio.com. If you like podcasts, you can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, or at fbiradio.com forward slash podcasts. And hey, if you are digging our stuff, subscribe and chuck us a review if you have a moment. It would mean so much. If you want to get in touch with us, jump on Facebook or Instagram and search Race Matters. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next time. Race matters. 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 Race matters.